Greetings and welcome, listeners, to Compare and Campaign, a DM's discussion podcast, wherein myself, Tom Lando, and my co-host... Stay a while and listen. Hello, friends. Join me by the fire. Miguel. I'm Miguel. Miguel and I will be uh, just talking about uh, being Dungeon Masters and running games of Dungeons & Dragons, and we will be talking about our own campaigns over the course of this pod to, um, I don't know, just give some advice, some meditations, and some uh, thoughtful thoughts on yeah, this was uh, this was inspired in part by a conversation we had recently. I'm running a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, and I wanted to pick your brain about just plotting and structure, and really just topics that only the DM has to deal with when running a D and D campaign. And honestly, I think you're the only other dungeon master I know who's like still running games. I have a lot of friends who have been DMs at various points in their life, but uh, very few of us have continued on like into full-on adulthood. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, for me, it's, uh, it's, it's almost vocational, you know? It's a craving. I gotta be doing <laughs> it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not even so much of... Uh, I know a lot of people, a lot of friends of mine have trouble running games of Dungeons & Dragons these days for logistical issues, which is always kind of a thing. Exactly. We've reached um, the, the, the age where, like, people have, you know, marriages and kids and lots of work and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so with all those responsibilities, I think it might be more fair to say that we are the rare breed of person who prioritizes Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons and being DMs you know, so I, highly. Fair. That's a fair point. Uh, I was going to I was going to say like you, you know, I feel it, like it's it's almost a necessary creative outlet. If, it, if I go too long without DMing an adventure, I get kind of antsy. True. And I, I just like on the note that I was saying, like, I know other people who like, like, I think, you know, at our age, being like this sort of person, you learn to identify the other people who have that same vocational level of like they prioritize like oh i really want to be running a dungeons and dragons game even if they are uh you know i have a friend who has a very pretty involved job doing like ai science but he still makes time to run a weekly game of dungeons and dragons well i mean uh, one uh, topic that i'm sure we'll cover eventually is just the resurgence of D &D. i feel like we're in sort of like the dungeons and dragons second renaissance uh, not that long ago, I came across an article where the headline was something like, you know, why startup CEOs are playing D&D. Uh, I think people are catching on to it as just, you know, not only a fun game, but like a creative outlet, good for flexing the creativity, and also like team building, things like that. I suppose Stranger Things probably uh, helps it along as well. Yeah, it certainly helps, but I think, um, yeah, I definitely agree that this is uh, an exciting time for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, did we want to talk about our favorite systems first? Yeah, let's first do it. We don't want. All right. <clears throat> so, um, I think on the note we were just thinking, like lately, certainly I have been very much a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, player, same here. Uh, and 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 DM. Um, I think that's been the case for like basically since it came out 
Um, before that, I mean, so I started a long time ago. I think the first system I ever uh, picked up was Big Eyes Small Mouth Second Edition. What? Uh, I have never like even heard about this. Man, BESM, which has a very sort of unfortunate <laughs> acronym given what it's adjacent to. But um, yeah, it's like an anime role playing system, and it used Big Eyes uh, Small Mouth, and it's anime themed. Who yeah, published it? Uh, uh, I think they were called Guardians of the Coast. Something. Or, oh wow! Uh, man, so not one of the big ones. Not like Steve Jackson or or Gerps or any of that. No, uh, I can look it up here. I know it ran on a system that was like uh, called yeah TriStat RPG system. Whoa, <laughs> that is a deep cut. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I mean, um, it's funny. I picked it up back. Uh, there's a, a hobby store in North Bay, and I have some family in North Bay, and I'll go and visit them. And uh, it's always been a real treat for me since I was young to go visit the North Bay Games and Hobbies. And they have a real trove of like obscure RPG books. And so that's where I got that. And, you know, I started off just running that game with like uh, friends and my brother and sisters. I love um, hearing this because I I feel like we're I feel I feel like even though you know we were saying that we're sort of like the rare people who still prioritize this into adulthood and things like that I I get the sense that our experiences are maybe a bit more universal than we think because you talking about like the the coveted North Bay hobby store with its obscure RPG books for me uh, in fact uh, you're still living in Ottawa I've moved to Toronto but. Uh, in Ottawa, for me, I lived in Gatineau when I was a kid, and it was going to Fandom 2 in downtown Ottawa that was, like, the big thing for me and getting to peruse their enormous selection of Rift source books. I uh, still go to Fandom 2, in fact. Uh, I uh, don't go there so much to pick up still run by, like, really rude nerds? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it is... Uh... <laughs> Which uh, I think we just lost our Phantom Two sponsorship oh, for the no. podcast, I mean, they, but that's okay. I, I, like, I don't give a shit because they like they always gave me the cold shoulder, and I shopped there for probably close to fifteen years. Yeah, I um, I still go there more to pick up paints for doing miniatures and whatnot. But uh, well, they were sort know. of like the only game in town for a long time in Ottawa. It probably still. Uh, with a focus on things like RPG books and uh, and miniatures, I guess uh, like Wizard's Tower might might be competitive in that way. But there was a place uh, right near me when I was growing up in the South End, uh, uh, the Hobby Center in Cave Comics, um, and they technically still exist. They moved, but they have completely shifted. Like they don't carry Warhammer stuff anymore. They only carry like the kind of models that my dad does, like military models, uh, the stuff that I do. Like like um, actual he, hobby shop, not game store stuff. Yeah, they've definitely moved towards that sort of uh, vibe. And so, that I mean, that's one of the reasons why I go to Fandom 2. I mean, uh, they still sell, you know, that type of miniatures and uh, role-playing books, which the Hobby Center used to carry. That was sort of my first exposure to that. It's like, where are these books full of... 
so pictures you, and numbers. <laughs> did you just fall into RPGs on your own? Like you you got your hands on a source book and were like, what is this? Um, I mean, so I have this weird memory of like, so I had a, I was really into PC gaming as a kid and in like grade school, I had a subscription to PC gamer and, um, this is also very familiar to my youth. Yeah. So, you know, and it, as a kid, I barely cared about what was written in those things. It was mainly just like all the crazy flashy ads and the screenshots and just sort of imagining what and all the, these games the were coconut like. Coconut monkey CD ROMs that would the, come. And the demo issues. discs, exactly. And so um anyways, I just have this very clear memory of like going to my mom uh after reading something in an art in a PC gamer and asking her like what is Dungeons and Dragons? And like not really getting a solid answer and just being like fascinated by that mystery. It's like you know what that, is this that, thing? That scans, I bet you were reading about like Baldur's Gate or one of those early sort of D and D based RPGs. Any kind of uh any any like kind like of RPG Dale, really. You know? Yeah, I think I think it could have it may have just been I think at that point what kind of mystified me about that memory it, it, in the in the moment was that um I think I had seen it referenced so many times that it seemed almost universal to me and then the fact that my parents didn't have a solid answer for me on what it was was like whoa <laughs> so it makes it extra like, exciting I think I think that multiple ads had been like this is like the closest thing to playing Dungeons and Dragons on a computer for like all sorts of RPGs and oh, uh yeah, okay. Finally it sort of reached a point where I was like man they talk about this Dungeons and Dragons thing. That sounds cool. What is this? Dungeons and like and dragons? Exactly, exactly. Um and so yeah, I think I know that leading up to getting that Big Eyes Small Mouth source book, I had sort of gotten into like the freeform forum based online kind of stuff. Oh, like, like uh, uh, MUDs or, or BBSs. The, the big one for me was RPOL.net, uh, role playing online. It, and it's just like, uh, it's just a forum of forums and you can start your own forum and do your own play by post role-playing game and uh i had at least one that i was doing with like a friend from school um before i you know invested money into a role-playing game book which uh that was kind of just striking out and being like oh this looks cool like that's awesome you came upon it like organically um, I had it all introduced to me by a friend that I made in grade six. <clears throat> in my grade six year, I was put into, well, not to toot my own horn, of course, but I was put into the grade six enriched program, like a special grade six for students who had gotten really good grades. Um, the advanced I just want to say... We went to Carleton University, and in my first year, I was in the Enriched Support Program, and that meant you were maybe a little bit less <laughs> gifted. So, well, it's the support. The program there is the support. Well, 
I'm just saying, enriched programs can go either way, I guess. I mean, this was the only time I was put into an enriched program in school, so make of that what you will. It was my final year of elementary school before I went to uh, junior high. And uh, so I was put into this, this new class, and with it, a bunch of students who I had never met before, because some of them were coming from outside the school to attend this, like, enriched program. I made friends with a guy named James, uh, very quickly, similar sort of nerdy interests as me. But at this point in my life, like, I was into PC gaming. I loved fantasy stuff, you know, fantasy movies. Uh, choose your own adventure books. But I really had no concept of D&D. My parents didn't play D&D. And so, like you, I'd probably heard the name, but uh, also I was growing up in the country so there wasn't even like a neighborhood comic book store for me to hang around with the other nerds and like learn about this stuff. And so I became friends with this guy, James, and he quickly started introducing me to all these things like uh, BBSs, bulletin board systems. Uh, we'd play Legend of the Red Dragon on a BBS. And did you ever play Lord 326 or any of those games? I don't think so. Very basic, like, multi-user dungeons, all text-based. And it was the kind of thing where, like, you log in, you choose a username, and it'll say, like, okay, do you want to be uh, a mage, uh, a knight, or a thief? And you make your character just with the most basic stats. And then it'll give you, you know, daily quests where it's like you can go to the woods and you can have encounters and it'll be random encounters fighting monsters. You can go to the tavern and play drinking games. There was like a preliminary message board where you could leave messages for your friends. And let me tell you, this was before like email uh, was really popular. So that just seemed like the future to me. I suddenly got to play games with all my school friends and not have to like drive an hour to see them. Um, <clears throat> and James also introduced me to Rifts. It wasn't Dungeons and Dragons at first. He, he was he, his older brother played Dungeons and Dragons, but for some reason James was just way more into Rifts. Maybe it's the fact that Rifts is like a thirteen-year-old boy's power fantasy RPG, and we were both thirteen-year-old boys. Um, so Rifts was the first one that I played, and if any of our listeners haven't heard of Rifts, um, it's just like it's just everything combined into one, like. Star Wars, D&D, Fallout, Mad Max, like aliens, anything, basically any sort of fantasy sci-fi property is all mashed up into the gigantic uh, RPG world of Rifts. And uh, part of the appeal, like Rifts just totally blew my mind when I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old because like I just could not have conceived of all the insane stuff like, I was just getting into the idea of cyborgs when I met James. I had learned about them through, like, you know, the movie The Terminator and things like that. But, man, like, Rifts just... If you like mechs and cyborgs, you can literally buy about a dozen different source books that are just all stats and write-ups and illustrations and blueprints of mechs and cyborgs and robots and weaponry. It just goes on and on and on. And I think that's why I sort of fell into the world of Rift so hard. Not only was it my first taste of role-playing games, but that really is a system where it's like literally anything you want, you can play. 
you want to be like a space vampire who's got a gargoyle for a familiar and can shoot lasers out of his eyes. Yeah, we got rules for all of those things. You want Wolverine. I remember the first, I think it's in the base source book, like the Rift's core source book. They have rules for cybernetics. And the first one is just Wolverine claws. And you're like, you know, when you're 13, you're like, oh my God, let's just do it. Everything. It's, it's really funny because I have recently had to sort of plumb through that, or I chose to plumb through the Rift's core book list of cybernetic mods uh, for just a little like cyberpunk game that I've been running on the side. Um, but that's just kind of tangential. I Those also illustrations, just... man, are burned into my brain. Like before the internet was, you know, what we all know it to be now, like, those books were my internet. I would just spend hours. I'd copy the drawings out of them, and I'd just I'd make characters even if I wasn't going to play them. I'd just spend time like making a whole character sheet and designing this guy. It's funny. Um, I mean, so the idea of like uh, you know the books being your internet and drawing them and stuff. That's definitely going back to the PC gamers. Like that's part of what it was for me. But um, I think I should also mention it's like sort of bef long before I comprehended role-playing games and whatnot. I remember when I we would visit the hobby center, I would sometimes look at the role-playing game books and just like not really comprehend what they were. I'd be like, what's this mysterious Star Wars book that's nothing but pictures and numbers and stuff? And um, so in a way... There was an introduction there. Like, uh, I remember, I think I have the, like, third edition Dungeons and Dragons monster manual, and I think I just asked for that for Christmas one year, but it was sheerly just because I wanted all those cool pictures yeah. of monsters. And you and know what? Uh, also, this was also in grade six. Uh, James, my buddy James, who introduced me to all of this, my RPG dealer back in the day, um, he had just upgraded his book to the official Monsters Manual, Advanced D&D, AD&D's second edition plus uh, Monster Manual. And so he gave me his old copy of the Monstrous Compendium, which was a Monster Manual that you had to cobble together yourself through, like, mail-ins. You got the a, a binder, and one? then you had to, yeah. like, send away for the leaflets with all the monsters. So he then, gave me his old copy of that, and it had in the back, like, a huge stack of blank monster templates that he had made. And man, I went nuts with those. I made so many of my own monsters. Not even knowing what it meant, I just copied down info, like, stats and stuff off the other, uh, the other monster entries. That's definitely a better way to do it, because if you send away for the leaflets, like, half of them would just be giant ant, giant centipede, yeah, exactly. giant spider... <laughs> Giant frost worm, giant fireworm, <laughs> medium fireworm. Oh, oh my god! Anyways, um, so yeah, uh, I mean, so this was originally going to be about our favorite systems, but I think it just got into our I mean, history. This is where of it starts. Like systems we've uh, gone to, even though Rifts has not been. A, I haven't played Rifts in probably close to at least 20 years probably a lot more but it will always be one of my favorites because it was my first taste so there we can wrap it back around to what we were saying i mean there's a lot to love about riffs and definitely 
another game that I got at North Bay Games and Hobbies at some point uh, after getting into Big Eye Small Mouth and whatnot. I did. I picked up uh, Risk Chaos Earth, which was oh, supposed yeah. to be like the prequel. Um, little note: it advertises itself as like you know you're struggling survivors during the apocalypse of Risk, but uh, the designer can't help but make half the classes like mech warriors. Oh yeah, so oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> there's no element. There's no element of like survivalism in the game, really. <laughs> well, and that was that was never the point of rifts. The point of rifts was just to do whatever the hell you wanted. I think chaos being, earth and just being tried that to it's pitch always itself. like twelve year old boys playing it. It's like and all the girls have big boobs. You know? Well, that was right on the cover of the old rifts. It's literally, but, uh... almost every cover. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, and, and yeah, there's something just very. Uh, lovable about the way you know Riss has all those world books and so you can have this this huge catalog of like this is what Riffs Asia is like this is what Riffs Africa is like and um the I think the ultimate example of that is there are I think three Rift source books just for South America or South Africa I think <laughs> like yeah there's gets definitely into the a few... multiples there's like multiple for like Russia and China, I think. There as is well. a Quebec, a Rifts Quebec yeah. world book. There's Canada and Free Quebec are are, are separate books, and but I also just want to say like some of the allure of this goes away once you've read a lot of the books and you know that they are full of like very dry statistics about like topsoil percentages in northern ontario which are first of all not terribly useful to me as a dm but also they don't feel like riff statistics they feel like statistics from right now <laughs> they probably are man see i have currently i have uh, a huge collection of digital uh rpg books that i've acquired over the years and just talking about this really makes me want to dive into all the rifts books that i, ha I think I have most of them <laughs> there's probably even more that have been printed since i acquired these it's also i mean i love that they have a million source books and then the rifter which is like the uh i don't know how often but like the rifts uh basically their like version of like magazine. Dungeon Magazine, right? Yeah, and it's just full of new stuff. Everyone, like, I have one Rifter that's got like ludicrous magic, and it's just wacky, like spells that just are like jokes, like pie in the face or like <laughs> uh, atomic wedgie, and it's like you could play a just a clown sorcerer or something. You know, um, you know, we're we're really gonna have to at some point dedicate some real time in these discussions to just talking about our favorite obscure uh source books and handbooks absolutely like, like man i love the uh was it the encyclopedia magica from uh, from a yes. D, D uh second yeah. edition oh my god i that's love that's the one books. you have that's just a massive tome of of magic right yeah it's four <laughs> volumes of just magic items and uh i also just wanted to say I can't uh, talk about my favorite systems without also giving a nod to uh, White Wolf and uh, the World of Darkness systems, Vampire, 
those were definitely something I got very into uh, in like high school. I mean, it's it kind of goes hand in hand. It's like you have riffs when you're in junior high, and then you get all broody, and you get your vampire book, and oh, cool, I can be my own type of vampire. Um, but I kind uh, of missed out on the World of Darkness games. I only ever played a few games that my friends were running, but I never took part in like a full campaign of something like Changeling or Vampire. I only ever played like the occasional adventure and then the campaign wouldn't end up going anywhere and i came to it a bit later as well so i feel like it's it's one of those things where i feel like i should love it a lot more than i do but i also think that maybe i i just haven't had enough experience with it um i think so i got into world of darkness just uh, to quickly sum up is like so at some point in high school a friend of mine showed me vampire the masquerade and at this point i'd already sort of been into like uh maybe a bit of riffs definitely big eyes small mouth i definitely in high school was like into vampires and stuff and so when a friend showed me a very sort of out there vampire rpg with all these different vampire subtypes and uh again I'm a real sucker for anything that just has like a million supplement books where it just seems like there's infinite potential uh, just in the sheer number of things you can explore. But um, what's funny is that I was shown Vampire the Masquerade and like quickly got into that. But then I found out that around the time I got into it, the big thing was like the new world of darkness. Basically, White Wolf had done a full... Uh, setting wide apocalypse for the old world of darkness which was vampire the masquerade werewolf the apocalypse and those games had always had that sort of built in uh they were all about the meta plot but um i came into it at a time where they were just starting to make this new world of darkness which didn't have that built-in coming apocalypse or anything and it had kind of a different vibe it was almost like less grim and stuff and it was a very interesting thing to get into sort of like uh especially since i was really into it even like coming out of high school and stuff there was something fascinating to me about um vampire and mage about playing these characters who just they don't deal with normal problems like i think there's uh and i you know you know, obviously Dungeons and Dragons, you don't normally deal with normal problems, but vampires don't even have to deal with, like, the normal things that would kill you and stuff. And there's something about exploring that type of story that was really fascinating to me. But, uh, you know, I think everything we've talked about so far has had, like, a little criticism appended as well. One thing that I definitely kind of... um I don't like about those games anymore and looking back I think was like a misstep in the design of those games is there was a very strong uh emphasis in the new world of darkness especially on this idea of personal horror and you know part of that was about telling stories that were about like the psyche and 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 you know uh morality and stuff but it also it just kind of pushed the storyteller the dm of those games to kind of make their players actually uncomfortable 
Yeah, and you know that is. I sort of got that impression. It's funny because back then, you know, I think as a kid, I took just totally like as a teenager, I bought into it. I was like, yeah, the like I think I wanted to be edgy, like yeah, the world is grim and we can't hide from oh, the yeah. dark I things mean, in va- our life. Vampire is of course the goth RPG. Exactly, and you know, I wasn't uh, stylistically a goth, but I was a big metalhead, and you know, I was into all the morbid stuff. And, well, okay, you know, so I say, I say, you know, Vampire is the goth RPG. Well, you're not into that? Well, you could play a red cap in Changeling. Yeah, or a crazy werewolf that listens to punk music and, like, drives a truck. Um, but, you know, just going back to that point is, like, that is fundamentally something I disagree with now as a DM. And, uh, you know, I would remiss if on the DM discussion podcast I didn't say that is, like, I genuinely regret any time that I did make a player uncomfortable at the table. That is, I, that's another topic for, for further discussion at some point is the comfort of your players because I'm right there with you. I don't want my players to ever be uncomfortable. And so I've had to find creative ways of doing things like running, you know, torture and interrogation, for example. The players get captured and tortured how do you run that without making your actual players feel really uncomfortable about it? Um, but going back to favorite systems, uh, here are a few of mine. Uh, I mentioned Rifts as my gateway drug. Uh, soon after that, I got into D&D. Same introduction. It was it, it basically, unless noted, it's my friend James from grade six, uh, who, I mean, I'm still in touch with him now. He's the guy who introduced me to all of this. So D&D came next, and that is definitely the system that I've played the most, still play it now. On my shelf, I have source books uh, from 2nd edition regular through AD&D 2nd edition, 3rd edition, 3.5, 4th edition. Uh, I'm only missing the 1st and 5th edition source books for the the core, Uh, and I, I, I remember like buying the 2nd edition original pre-AD&D books at like a yard sale for a dollar a source book, and I still have them now. They serve me so well. Uh, and besides D&D, I think the only systems I want to really note as being ones that I played a lot are uh, D20 Modern. <laughs> are you familiar with D20 Modern? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was aware of it, uh... There's almost a whole tangent here about Dungeons and Dragon magazine, uh, but you know that's sort of how I was aware of D twenty Modern is like ads in Dragon magazine and stuff. Um, I got into it. I just sort of discovered it when the the core rulebook came out, uh, and I was pr- I was actually at Fandom too, of course, and I spotted D twenty Modern. What's this? And D twenty Modern is really just third edition D anD D. But uh, more generalized so that you can apply it to any setting. The idea is that you'd apply it to a modern setting, a sort of Shadowrun style uh, setting is their default. But I used it to run like a Cthulhu style campaign. Uh, I used it heavily in the campaign that I'll be focusing on uh, going forward with our conversations. And I just I uh, did a post-apocalyptic campaign. I just found it really versatile because 
rather than the classes being based around things like, you know, uh, you're a bard, you're a, a mage, you're a fighter. It was just accentuating each of the attributes. So you'd have a smart hero and a fast hero and a strong hero. And as a result, you could apply it to anything. You know, you wanted to set something in present day and someone's a scientist, they're a smart hero. Uh, they're an athlete, they're a fast hero, or they could be like a, a tough hero, that kind of a thing. So I used D20 Modern to run all sorts of campaigns just because of its versatility. Uh, so I guess I'd list it as my favorite, but it has so many shortcomings as well uh, that quite often what I end up doing, there's so many RPGs that are based off of just that D20 system that was really introduced with 3rd edition D&D that I often just sort of pick and choose some house rules from associated uh, materials and combine them all, uh, but all based around that D20 system. And then the last one I want to mention, of course, is Fiasco, which is the best short form RPG in existence, man. That's, uh, I love Fiasco, but that's, um, yeah, that that's pretty recent in my role-playing game experience, but... Uh, yeah, I love Fiasco. I think one thing that we've touched on a bunch is like uh, crossing over material. I think that there's always something appealing about an open system like D20 Modern. Uh, BSM introduced me to this tri-stat system where you have body, mind, soul. And uh, to be honest, despite its simplicity, it ended up kind of clunky, I found. But, I mean, um, even World of Darkness as well, like... The, world That's of the, other the thing white wolf is, system is compatible across, you know, changeling and mage and all of those. And New World of Darkness especially tried to emphasize that by starting you with the ability to play just a person uh, with specialties and whatnot, with the idea that this person would eventually sort of evolve into a vampire, a werewolf, or a hunter, or whatever you chose. Um, but I think... You know, so right now we're both uh, running 5th edition, and um, I think it's worth noting that, like, at this point, and this may be true of whatever my uh, main focus, or whatever game I was primarily into at the time, uh, whenever I was playing them, but um, the idea of seeing other role-playing games and being like oh i'm really into that but then just taking the elements you like and trying to graft them onto the system that you're really into uh for example i've done tons of different sort of settings using that generic new world of darkness where i would sort of take the model of the vampire or the werewolf and make my own one time as a joke i made one that was like cookie monsters um but anyways, uh, the point is, I think, like, especially now, uh, it brings us back to the fact that, like, 5th edition is my favorite system now, is that these days, anytime I want to try something, I think of it in terms of how I would apply it to 5th edition, because 5th edition is just such a, it's a good go-to modular system, I find, that a lot of people play. It's the other thing with uh, it's I with agree. Its huge I haven't yet had the opportunity to try adapting fifth edition because the campaign that I'm running now, which has been going on probably like I want to say like three years, um, it was the first campaign 
that I ran using 5th edition, and it started probably right around the time 5th edition came out. But I definitely get the impression that it's really versatile in that same way. Um, yeah, uh, so I mentioned earlier I have sort of a cyberpunk side project game uh, going on like bi-weekly, and um, for that I have been using 5th edition, but like I said, I, I went through the cybernetics and rifts and tried to see how I would adapt those in terms of the mechanics and whatnot. And so I think, you know, we can list our favorite systems, but in addition, my favorite system will always kind of like absorb elements of the things around it. Um, it the, the things that I find really novel. And on another note is like Fiasco is another game that really... Like, if you play a game of Dungeons & Dragons and you use the fiasco system beforehand just to establish, like, the relationships between the characters, that can be really fascinating in the long run. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, actually, one more system that's worth mentioning, since we're on that topic, is... uh, Are you familiar with Microscope? I am not. So Microscope is a really interesting uh, RPG that you can play short-form or long-form... And what it does is uh, the, the title sort of refers to the fact that it allows you to either scale back the scope of the story that's being told or scale down, like zoom in. So you start by building a world using cue cards and creating a timeline of events and players. So like the timeline of events, you know, we'll start with, I think there's only two and it's sort of like the beginning of time and the end of time. And then players can take turns writing down an event and adding it to the timeline. So, you know, an empire rises, the the capital city is founded, and you can keep going like that. But at any point, a player can choose one of those cue cards and go a level deeper. So, you know, the event is like the cataclysm cataclysm causes life, uh, the first signs of life. And then you can zoom closer and be like the first form of life is an aquatic, you know, or an amphibious kind of like fish person. And then the next person, if they want, can go even a level deeper than that uh, and role play a scene who has that primitive fish person. But you can do it, you know, in any setting. You can have spacefaring and as far, as wide and broad as you want. And I often use Microscope as a launch point for a campaign setting. If I'm running out of ideas, I might host like a little uh, microscope session with some of my players and define a few of the key details and then allow them to collaborate and build upon it as well before actually setting a game within that setting. It's a really neat sort of storytelling world builder device in the form of a collaborative game. Yeah, I, I love that kind of system. And, you know, that's the whole reason that I'm so into fiasco and stuff. Just, you know even without playing the game, just examining all the elements that exist and all the play sets for Fiasco is, like, so inspiring. But I think uh, this actually brings us on to our first kind of uh, main subject beyond the introductions is starting a campaign. Uh, You know, where do you start? I think, you know, uh, a question that sometimes gets thrown around is where do you get your ideas? Do you have an answer, McGill? Where do I get my ideas? I mean, 
I like I hate to sound like a cliche, but it really is just sort of whatever I'm consuming at the time often has a big influence. Like, you know, I'll be watching a movie or I'll be reading some comics or something and something in that will spark an idea and I'll run from there. Uh, not to get too ahead, but the campaign that I want to talk about with you uh, on this show is uh, one that I ran a long time ago now, probably about 10 years ago. Um, and it's it's sort of st steampunk themed. I hesitate to call it fully steampunk, but at the time I was playing Bioshock. I was really inspired by the Art Deco steampunky design choices in Bioshock. So that inspired this whole campaign that is, it has some elements of Bioshock, but it actually goes way beyond. And when I talk about it, it'll probably sound like I, I'm ripping off of Bioshock Infinite, but I have a city in the sky, and this was years before Bioshock Infinite. So maybe there's a little prescient there. So in a nutshell, my ideas are just sort of born out of my own wandering thoughts while I consume media. Sometimes it's like a direct inspiration. Sometimes it's a bit more abstract. I definitely, I have that, like that every once in a while, something I see will inspire me and, you know, I want to incorporate that. But what's funny is that with me, I have almost more of a sol a more solid answer to this question, where do you get your ideas than most people have? Like, I think a lot of creatives kind of struggle with this question because it's like, well, I just, I get them. And um, for me, you know, I have that. But I can also say that I have, um, when I design a campaign or often when I sort of uh, start any kind of project, I love to kind of have um, like a, a base creative, <laughs> how, how should I describe this? I was going to say a base creative resource, but it's more... Um, a base source of inspiration that I can continuously come back to. And it's usually anything that comes in like a large uh, plurality. Like a good example is like one of the reasons I was so fascinated by Rifts and World of Darkness is that there's so many books. And I could look at that and be like, okay, well, I'll go to this book for inspiration. And then once I've done everything that I can think of doing with that, I'll go on to the next book. And that gives me this sense of like, there's always going to be stuff to draw on. But something I should actually clarify about my answer is that getting inspiration from the media I'm consuming, uh, I answer that it, it only really applies or it, it applies particularly to RPGs. That's the thing is like if I'm coming up with my own idea for like a short film or something, I'll draw ideas from very different sources. But when it comes to RPGs, usually it's born of a desire to like play around in a world similar to something I've seen. I ran a post-apocalyptic campaign and while it is not a carbon copy of Mad Max, it's very much inspired by Mad Max, you know, and like I said, the campaign I'm going to be talking about that sort of steampunk art deco very inspired by Bioshock because I just wanted to play a, a campaign, run a campaign in those settings. So my answer doesn't apply to all these different creative outlets of mine. It's just mainly when it comes to role-playing game campaigns. I draw my inspiration from stuff like movies and video games and comics. 
So when I, for me, when I say a creative uh, base resource, um, what I mean, it, it helps a lot better if I illustrate. So for example, the campaign that I'm going to be describing and probably any campaign that I bring up, um, I mentioned that I am a metalhead. I'm quite into metal. And one of the things I love about metal that I think is probably associated to something in my brain that makes me love these RPGs that have tons of books is I love, there's all these like archives of metal online. There's all these people who have like summed up every metal album and every metal band in the world. And, you know, if you go to like, it's sort of like my love or that mystified love of the hobby store extends to record stores for me as especially like one with a lot of metal because i'll go and i'll see all these crazy album covers and i'll it's like i look at each one and it's like that's a campaign that's a campaign that's a campaign well but, metal metal is very performative in that way right like it, part of it is sort of creating its own lore and its own mythos and dealing in those high fantasy you know extraterrestrial kind of elements it's almost like it's almost like wrestling in that way where it's just these like these strange kind of long-running tales involving things like dragons and and fan and all these fan fantasy storytelling elements and the and like the overall narrative breaks into a thousand little sub narratives and um i think for me like so obviously that's like ripe ground uh, for harvesting for inspiration for role-playing games. But also for me, it's like I see those albums and it's almost like a challenge for me to tell that story. And the way I do that is when I break down my campaign, um, basically I will have... So this is the way I've done the past three campaigns that I've done, is I will have... Uh, a campaign that is broken down into a number of acts or uh, arcs. Those can be like anywhere from three to like six or even ten, depending um, depending how many things I want to do in this story, basically. But each one will effectively be based on one album. And then each sort of uh, adventure or quest within that arc is a track on that album or like that's where i get that inspiration from it's almost like i sort of challenge myself or restrict myself to sort of give myself this focus down on something but when i do um you know that's what really uh fuels it is i'm like okay you, you know actually as we go through these campaigns i'm going to be able to say each one like what the album was and what track of that album like inspired me and what I was sort of uh, going from there. And so, yeah, I have this just um, sort of uh, compulsion towards anything that's kind of archival like that. Like I think long before this, this fascination was in those PC gamer magazines and the idea of like, oh, I want to make a game out of this page with all these crazy pictures on it. And then on the next one, I'm going to make a game out of this page. Um, and it's just like the, uh, like designing a campaign actually lets me kind of realize that, um, that sort of art. 
so on that note, the sort of question is like with a campaign is is where do you start? Um, do you have a specific way that you like to start? Like you mentioned microscope as a way of starting campaigns. Do you have any other like uh, go-to methods that you start with or? Well, I mean, it's, it's tricky, you know, it's hard to actually uh, think of how I approach writing a campaign because I've been working on just this ongoing one for so long. It's weird to think back uh, to beginnings and quite often, like I'll think of the the grand story I want to tell. I usually try to also think of an approximate number of adventures that I want to sort of let, have the story told across. You know, I think of it like almost like a se seasons of a TV show or something like that, just to give myself a basic framework and have kind of an endpoint in sight that I can always be working towards and maybe a few key like bottleneck moments. Um, but I also know from my years of experience that my players will inevitably go off book and find unique directions to go in. So I know that I can't plan too specifically too far in advance. So usually what will happen is I will do a rough outline of the whole campaign with like a few key moments, the beginning and the end. And then I'll do a smaller outline of maybe the first three or four adventures, uh, depending on how, uh, how, you know, how much time I have to do. Time, of course, is always a factor as well. I could spend just infinite hours if I had them planning every single thing about every adventure. Like, I, I often feel sort of inadequate as, as a DM because I don't use enough maps. You know what I mean? And there are all these like rules about maps and positions in combat, and I just never have enough time to do the whole thing anymore. So um, if I had more time, I would definitely plan like lots of details in advance. But more often than not, it'll just be like the broad strokes, the big key moments, and then I'll plan two, three adventures to get things going. And by the time I'm halfway through the second of those adventures, I'll probably have to reassess and sort of figure out the direction that the players are headed in and how I can tie it into the first big climactic point. A mini boss, you know, a big reveal, just some bottleneck, an important choice. What about you? How do you plot out your campaigns? You seem like a man who will go way into detail. Oh, uh, well, okay. Uh, first, I just want to hit on a note is one friend of mine that's DMing a game that I'm in just recently got a really nice map making program. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a trap, man. You'll just end up making maps forever. This guy's well, got know. so many maps. <laughs> I'm a big fan of stock maps. More right. often than not, when I'm like planning out a D&D &D adventure, I'll... You know, think of, be like, okay, so they all come to a village that has a waterfall and a water wheel, and then I'll just go and find some stock map that vaguely resembles that, and then Photoshop fudge out the name and write the name of whatever village I have on it. Right. Um, it's funny, when you mentioned the idea of doing a campaign, like laying it out like seasons of a TV show, 
that's a metaphor that I think I come back to a lot. Um, particularly, it's like I like the actual process of playing Dungeons and Dragons to feel like a writer's room almost, where you know sometimes people have uh, unexpected and unpleasant things happen to their characters. But often we are all collaborating to say, well, what would be the cool thing to happen here? And that helps take some of the sting off of like that, uh, you know, the personal uh, consequence oh, of absolutely. Like, having a well, character lose their arm or something. Exactly. Like the fun of playing RPGs with your friends is not just to, to like play this collaborative game, but it's also like you're aiming for the the most fun you're aiming for the coolest thing in the biggest moment and even though as a dm you're the referee and you only sort of control half of the dynamic between you and your player uh part of the fun is setting up those obstacles so that you know the player can have a big satisfying moment and a big cool reveal and things like that uh you talk about treating it like a writer's room i studied screenwriting uh for a year uh, before I went to Carlton, and uh, one of the th one of the sort of screenwriting rules that I employ all the time with writing adventures is, you know, like what is what would be the hardest thing for your player to hear, for your character to hear? Your was the hardest obstacle that they can come up against. Keep challenging them, but never challenge them so much that it's impossible. And that way, when they overcome that challenge, whatever it may be, it's going to be like deeply satisfying for both dm and player um so on that note of like laying out the seasons and stuff i sort of i mentioned that my games are composed of uh you know arcs and whatnot and then those arcs are divided into smaller segments um when i'm initially creating a campaign though as you said if you get too mucked up in the detail, you know, you're setting yourself up for frustration and disappointment as the players, like, inevitably uh, thwart your predictions. And so what I do at the start is, you know, I've, I create the base campaign, and a large part of that, I think we're going to talk about just a bit later, is, like, what the players create, you know, uh, who the characters are, who the players want to be has a large effect on what the overall game is going to be. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. That well, the, the first adventure more often than not for me is, uh, just like, it's a, a very straightforward objective with a lot of room for everybody to settle into their characters and like figure out the party dynamic, figure out, you know, where everybody fits and how they get along with each other and just even get comfortable in, like, new personalities that they're putting on, you know? Uh, so, like, no, this isn't going to be the uh, the campaign that I, I talk about, but uh, one of the D&D &D campaigns I ran was this continent-spanning campaign across Eberron. Uh, and the the characters, the players, were all uh, members of, like, a a band, just like a traveling band traveling across this D&D fantasy landscape and having adventures on the way. And uh, so the, the, first, their, the first adventure was just them coming to town and, you know, playing a gig at the local tavern and overhearing about the town's plight, which was something that was polluting the water, the, the water from the waterfall. 
And so it was a really simple little thing that they had to, to solve, but it gave everybody a chance to figure out who they were. Incidentally, the reveal was that there was a Cyclops shitting in the waterfall. Uh, it's not a universal statement, but I believe Gary Gygax is said to have said that uh, the first five levels are character backstory. Character backstory is the first five levels of play or something. And again, it's not a universal statement, but I think it's an interesting way of looking at it is that, you know, those early sessions, that is when you're developing the characters. You shouldn't come into it with your character fully formed. Um, although sometimes you want to do that. Uh, I just well, wanted to half say... Of it, half of it is just how they interact with the other characters, too. Like, you can know everything about your character, but if you're playing, like, a stick-in-the-mud Niles Crane type and one of the other characters is, like, a really boisterous barbarian orc, then obviously things will have changed from what you had come to the table with. Absolutely. Um, going back to how I structure my games, um, there's... So... so once we have that idea of like who these characters are, for the past while, I've gone with this uh, theme of they're basically interdimensional super spies, the like interplanar Dungeons and Dragons super spies working for an agency, and that helps gives it a lot of structure. But like alternatively, they could have said they wanted to be like a crew of pirates or something, and you could make a campaign like that. But um, Going on from there, uh, the way I set it up is each of those arcs, I have planned out just to the extent of like what I want the theme of that arc to be. So for example, uh, I may decide that in the fourth act of a campaign, I want there to be a theme of like, there's a winter that's going on too long and all the sort of quests and dungeons will have a sort of ice theme. And that's, that's interesting. Uh, dealing with things like ongoing motifs. Uh, I don't like, I don't always run with that, but the current campaign that I'm, I'm playing, which is just a, a fifth edition D and D campaign with a, a Greyhawk, like a standard Greyhawk D and D setting in that one. Uh, there's a plague that's broken out. And so as the game has gone on, there's more and more signs, you know, like bodies piling up in cities and food lines and things like that. The once vibrant city of Greyhawk is now like dingy and there's nobody out on the streets because of the disease. So it's cool to hear that you you think of that as early as the planning stages. So I, I'll admit I don't often. I, and I don't fully flesh it out. Like, sometimes I don't know enough to say, like, exactly how it's going to manifest. But, you know, another thing is that I have these touchstones of, like, each of these acts is also based on an album. And so sometimes it's as simple as I looked at the album cover and it was, like, an icy castle. And it was like, all right, that's icy castle arc. That one's going to be fun. Um, and uh, <laughs> So do you, you like... Know, do you like shuffle up your albums and then pick one at random? And you're like, next, we're going to uh, the Black Spire on the mountaintop. No, uh, the funny thing is, so I have just for the past like three campaigns been doing this and just in order using like every album listed on the 
profla- uh, sorry, Profound Lore Records Bandcamp page. And the thing is, like, my players aren't crazy into obscure metal music. And uh, so they don't know what the order of the albums on the <laughs> Profound Lore Bandcamp metal page is. So uh, I just go there and it's like, it's just a list of all these albums that this one label has put out. And each one is some crazy metal thing sometimes they're like oh, kind of do you play those albums as like mood music while you while you dm sometimes it depends on the album sometimes the album is like sometimes the album is abstract and sometimes that's cool because it gives me a lot of room to interpret it um but sometimes it just like does not condone a good play space like if it's a lot of like weird like sometimes it's if it's the right weird noise it's perfect other times it's like uh this album gives me more of like a tristram diablo soundtrack vibe at once i put it into like this fantasy setting um and so i don't use the actual like kind of grungy black metal that uh inspired it um but that's definitely something to say is like um these ideas of this arc is going to be about, uh, you know, them going to hell. You know, if I see an album that has, you know, what there's actually an artist that's called like Cania, which is the circle of hell that, no, it's Cana, and then Cania is the Dungeons and Dragons one. Basically, Dungeons and Dragons ripped off a circle of hell from, you know, Dante's or whatever, and then one metal band uses that circle of hell as their name and i was like i saw that connection and i was like oh well then this album they're gonna go to hell they're gonna go there <laughs> um that's i love that like this is it, this is like a, a metal band's in joke upon an in joke to you making an in joke about their in joke and you know the best part is that uh just recently in fact the act like the arc of the campaign that i am running currently uh, while this arc was running, the band whose album I was using for the inspiration came to play in Ottawa, and I got to say to that guy who wrote that music, hey, I'm translating this album into a Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> campaign. Oh, man. He was pretty into it. That's great. So, yeah, that's basically where I start is... Uh, this was a metal. list of things. Yeah, <laughs> a list of metal. Um, you know, it's not... That's part of it. The thing is, you know, the campaign I'll be talking about, also, uh, I started it right around when, you know, just the player's handbook for 5th edition had come out. I think the monster manual had come out, but not the Dungeon Master's Guide. And so when I started, I had this metal, but also... All I really had was like a sense of what the core monsters were in 5th edition. And it was sort of like, all right, tell these metal stories, use these monsters. Um, whatever other resources I had, uh, you know, I think I took certain things from the player's handbook to make cool items and whatnot. Um, but yeah, uh, that campaign in particular, since there was not that much supplemental material for fifth edition yet uh it really was like i started with just metal and the core materials of dungeons and dragons and uh, tried to cobble together what i could i mean what more do you need <coughs> well what you need 
is players for your party, which I think brings us into our next, the segue into our next uh, segment. So um, one thing I want to ask you right off the bat about this is, do you typically, like, again, you mentioned the microscope thing, which was very interesting. Do you typically do a session zero or like a session before play where you just all get together and uh, talk about the game, talk, maybe make characters collaboratively, that sort of thing? Not as much anymore, just due to like time and geographical restrictions. Uh, these days, my players usually I'll sort of send you know a few emails back and forth with them discussing their character. Uh, and I guess that serves as like a quasi session zero. But certainly back in the day, like in high school and university, when I had a lot more time and I, all my players that I, I regularly played with were local, I play a lot more online now through like Google Hangouts. Um, so when everybody was in the same place and I had a lot more time, yeah, I'd definitely do a session zero where everybody would come over and we'd make, you know, everybody would work on their character sheets. Quite often, you know, there would be a few players who just need a bit of hand-holding from the DM to, like, guide them through how to build this particular character that they have in mind. Um, and in those sessions as well, there would always be, you know, those those sort of DM compromise things like, uh, hey, you know, can I have this perk if I also take this negative trait? Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, I have, I have gray eyes. Let me see that sheet. Well, it says I have blue eyes, but I decided I want gray eyes. <laughs> right. I, uh... I have not, so it's funny, uh, I did a session zero for this cyberpunk campaign that I was recently running, but that was the first time I'd done it in a while, and I think a large part of that is kind of like familiarity, right? Um, if it's a party, if you know the players fairly well, and you know their, how familiar they are with the system, how, yeah. um, you know, <clears throat> how much help they'll need, then... Yeah, a that, new system uh, is a good excuse for session zero as well. Absolutely, and and new players, uh, that sort of thing as well. Um, I think also because uh, with my past few campaigns, there's been sort of running themes. Like I mentioned, there's uh, like the party has always been this kind of super spy team, and so with the players going into it knowing that there's a bit less need for the session zero, I can just see what their characters are and drop them right into it. But in the interest of having that sense of the table being a writer's room, sometimes I think it's very beneficial to have that session zero, uh, especially, you know, since it lets you do things like uh, we mentioned using microscope or fiasco as like a jumping point or just to like, you know, throw a twist into the, into the campaign. Like maybe you've already got stuff planned out, but then you, give yourself some extra modifiers at the beginning. Um, So the campaigns that we are talking about uh, in the podcast to begin with, um, I guess, did you do a session zero? Uh, I did a session zero. Yeah. Uh, This one. uh, So I'll, as I here, let me give just a little brief introduction to the campaign. I'm going to be talking about, um, as I mentioned, it's this heavily Bioshock-inspired campaign uh, that has become known among the players. They just call it the Steampunk campaign. But I feel like Steampunk is such a dirty word, man. It conjures up very specific imagery that I wanted to avoid in some part. 
I was um, thinking of some alternatives for you, like uh, Grammo Punk, like Gramophone. Uh, ether Punk, in fact, is what I would right. lean towards. Very Ether Punk. Uh, I wanted to make it uh, very like pulp novel, um, inspired by the same stuff that the steampunk movement was inspired by, but leaning less on Jules Verne and allowing for a lot more things that, you know, like like Bioshock, like Art Deco, Diesel Punk, Atom Punk, Ether Punk kind of thing. Maybe a bit of like Star Wars Flash Gordon in there too. Uh, yeah, and I called I, it Minds I, of Metal and Wheels, but nobody nobody knew that one. Didn't pick up. I wanted to say, um, yeah, that whole, like, navigating that whole space of, like, is it steampunk? What kind of punk is this? Is, uh, I think it's something that's fairly common these days. Like, with the PC game Disco Elysium, the RPG recently, I sort of had this whole crisis of, like, what kind of punk is it? And sort of settled on like radio punk. Radio but, punk. Uh, well, uh, uh, it's funny. <laughs> I was having this discussion with a friend of mine about Blade Runner and how Blade Runner is like no longer cyberpunk, and it's almost like CRT punk, like yeah, clickety clack punk. Exactly. Um. So, Minds of Metal and Wheels was the name of my my ether punk campaign, and. Uh, going back a little bit to what we were talking about, you know, pulling from different sources, I use D20 Modern as the basis, but there is a campaign setting that uses the, D the D20 system called Etherscope, and I drew on that quite a bit. And then there was another uh, uh, RPG from like the early 2000s called Space 1889, and I drew a bunch from that as well. So th this was cobbled together from numerous sources using d20 as the basis yeah i think also with my game so i mentioned that my game you know it started almost at the during the earliest points in in fifth edition like not D, &D next but you know once just a couple of the books had come out and i'd sort of caught on to it and um it's i think it, it's actually interesting to note that before running this campaign i think i had been i'd been running a bunch of sort of just experimental uh kind of world of darkness campaigns i'd been running sort of sci-fi world of darkness campaigns uh the first of which was called space vampirates and much like its title it was the best of them but uh the i mean this is the sort of trick is that it started off as a sort of uh sci-fi experiment in world of darkness and the games that I ran after it continued to be these kind of experimental games. And eventually those experiments stopped turning out so good. I sort of had like a string of games that were kind of flops and like I wasn't really feeling it. And so for me, going into this early fifth edition period, there was a sense of like going back to basics. Like let's just do a classic fantasy rpg where we play classes and it's not nebulous and we don't have weird scenes with vampires that make us depressed <laughs> i it's funny i often go through sort of cycles like that as well not not uh necessarily having sort of flop campaigns but uh like i'll do um 
you know, I'll do a steampunk campaign and then a post-apocalyptic campaign and then a spacefaring campaign and then D&D back to basics fantasy reset. And I'll play like a long fantasy D&D campaign. And then after that, I'll probably do like something a little more niche, Tides of Numenera, you know, that kind of thing. Love Tides of Numenera. Only played the video game, but I loved it. <laughs> I, should, I have the source book. I should send it to you. So with my campaign, uh, I don't think I did a session zero, but there is was this a general... campaign. Sorry to interrupt. Is this one that like when did you run this one? Uh, this would have been right around the time that. So it would have been before, like it started before the Dungeon Master's Guide came out. Uh, it was running when the Dungeon Master's Guide came out for 5th edition. Um, it was after the Monster Manual had come out. I would say, I want to say it was like six years ago. It may have been like longer. I remember like being astounded when I saw how long, how long ago 5th edition had come out recently. Um... But there was, like, it's funny because I, I say there was this sense of, like, back to basics Dungeons and & Dragons. And part of that was, like, my setting was uh, about as, like, basic a fantasy setting as I could uh, create. But um, then it had this extra layer of, like, oh, but these players are employed by a spy agency from a different dimension that is like basically you know like the cia intervening in a foreign state this is like a spy agency that has sent agents to another dimension for some specific mission um and so i guess there's like a fair mix of like this idea that i had come up with as kind of uh you know i kind of wanted to do <clears throat> as a video game example i kind of wanted to do like planescape or tides of numenera like alpha protocol like this idea of like uh a spy game uh with like you know cool powers and stuff which uh you know spanned a, a multiverse basically or could potentially span a multiverse um it's worth mentioning like at the start um you know, you don't always know exactly where you're headed. And I wasn't, you know, I may have had uh, an idea of sort of motifs for different arcs in the campaign, but I didn't necessarily know whether the game would entirely take place in just like one world or if I'd uh, jump world to world between arcs. And like sometimes I switched it up. See, this is really cool because the campaign that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, I ran it uh, in 2007, 2008. It ran for about two years, way back then. And uh, this was shortly after my, at the time she was my girlfriend, now she's my wife. Uh, she'd moved in with me and uh, right at that time as well, I went to Carleton University where I met you. And also I reconnected with uh, an old friend of mine uh, who I'd known in grade nine, but then he went to Montreal for school for a number of years and then came back to Ottawa. So I reconnected with him and he also plays uh, RPGs. So 
session zero, I, I had already done like a small campaign with Caitlin and my friend from grade nine is Steve um, with the two of them. And then some more of my friends expressed interest in playing. So session zero for the, the etherpunk campaign was really also like an informal meet and greet, just getting everybody on the same page and introducing everybody to each other. Um, and, you know, sort of settling into the, the group dynamic because a few of these people were just meeting each other for the first time, which, which I was clever enough to work into the first adventure where uh, I'll talk more about this, you know, later when we eventually get into first adventure. But one of the things I wanted to do is because, you know, everybody, all the players were sort of meeting each other for the first time or ju had just recently met each other. Uh, when I start the adventure, they're, all their characters are strangers to each other, so that I played into that unfamiliarity quite a bit. Yeah, that's like a perfect setup for that you meet in a tavern and, you know, uh, scenario. But I think it's also, this is a pretty perfect segue for a good topic, which is, like, who were the players in these campaigns? Like, so when you had this session zero... How many players did you have? And like uh, you mentioned, like you had sort of specific dynamics with some of them. Um, yeah, how so, many players did you have? So, well, uh, at the start, I had two players, and uh, that would it, it was intended for three players to be at the start, but one of them couldn't make the first adventure, so I just sort of rolled with that, and they came in uh, at a later date. So initially, it was just two players. It was my friend Mike and my girlfriend, now wife, Caitlin. Um, and in that case, uh, they had never played an RPG together, but I had played RPGs with each of them individually with different groups. So they were, you know, seasoned players, uh, but sort of just, you know, meeting each other fairly recently at the time. Um, and that's always sort of been the case uh, with, RPGs I've played in my gaming groups is they've always just been sort of formed out of my friends. Um, people with similar interests, you know, I'll learn that a friend of mine plays D&D &D and we'll play. That's how you and I uh, sort of played together a bit is just like learning that we both have that same interest. Uh, but I've never really like done a drop in D&D &D session at a game store or like joined a D&D &D club at a school or anything like that. It's always just been uh, collecting nerds from my own social circle yeah so i um i normally i would say like i think my my sweet spot for a party for dungeons and dragons is like a three-player party and then i'm running it i find that's like the most manageable though i yeah think... max four players for me yeah four players i think is like maybe more the traditional um standard but like, for example, I'm playing in a game with five players right now, and, like, it's tolerable to play in, but I can't stand, like, running too many more players than four. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm very happy to run a game that's just, like, two players. Uh, I Going back to, I mentioned New World of Darkness, I actually should give a shout-out to Scion, which was, like, another world, White Wolf game that I ran for a long time where you play Children of Gods, and uh sort of in a modern setting and uh for a long time i ran that with just two players and you know that in and of itself can have a really cool dynamic in and of itself 
in that you sort of have a partner dynamic. Like I know I've had one game where we had two players and we sort of looked at it and went, okay, what if it was like a detective and his partner? And that was sort of the jumping off point for what that adventure was or what that campaign was. Um, in the case of my uh, campaign, which I guess you mentioned, you named your campaign. I should say that my campaign was named Mpoc's Finest, which uh, Mpoc is spelled capital M-P-O-C. It's an acronym. Uh, what's funny is that I can tell my player, for a long time, I was like telling my players that over and over again, and they still thought that it was like E-M-P-O-C-H, like a weird play on Epoch. And uh, so, so like they sort of realized halfway through the campaign what the acronym was and like started asking questions about that. But uh, because it stands for metaphysical principle of chaos, which is kind of a weird thing for a spy agency to be called, but they're interdimensional and whatever. So, so yeah, that's sort of like an inadvertent, you know, we talk about writing techniques. Um, one, another uh, screenwriting technique that I apply to games whenever I can uh, is something my teacher called the Chinese box technique, which is each each plot revelation expands the world as well. And that's that that's sort of an example of it. Like from the beginning, your players had heard you say MPOC, but it wasn't until way into the game that they realized that that had a deeper meaning. And suddenly the whole world just expanded by that much more, you know? Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a great moment to have where it's like you had a twist that you didn't even exactly plan, um, but it was just sort of built in. Uh, so the campaign was called Mpoc's Finest, and the idea was basically like, it's, you know, like the Avengers initiative. It's like this uh, agency is making a crack team of heroes that are going to be like the ones that they call on for uh, some special jobs. And I guess this is something that I started establishing more as the campaign went on. But there's also, uh, in addition to the sort of employers or the good guys being the MPOC, uh, there was a consistent antagonist, which is this uh, interdimensional necro-supremacist faction, uh, like an undead empire, basically, that was spreading from dimension to dimension called the Nightside Eclipse, which is a shout out to uh, the album Into the Nightside Eclipse. No, uh, In the Nightside Eclipse by Emperor, one of my old favorites. And uh, so anyways, the Nightside Eclipse are basically trying to, they're, they're like undead that are trying to go to new dimensions to basically turn them into food uh, or turn them to their cause as necessary. And uh, the MPOC is like, uh, you know, like the CIA, I've already made this comparison of like the CIA going to a foreign state to, quote, stop the spread of communism. Uh, the MPOC basically sends their teams to stop the spread of this nightside eclipse uh, undead empire. And uh, so the players were basically told, like, make whatever adventurers, like, make whatever class adventurers you want. Um, but you guys will be inducted into this sort of uh, super spy agency. And that'll be like... Um, it gives a structure where it's like each adventure is like a mission or an operation. 
uh, which is something I'll touch on more as the pod goes on. But um, also just to flesh out like who these players were, uh, one of them was my brother. Uh, one of them was my brother's girlfriend. And then two of them were good friends of my brother. And uh, my brother and the two friends, I had already been running these experimental games with. And I think my brother's girlfriend had uh, joined in at some point during the like experimental game, kind of like when we were trying things out. Um, but, you know, she, uh, stayed on, I think specifically for the Dungeons and Dragons one, like, uh, you know, it basically came out that when we started this Dungeons and Dragons game, I had the three main people who had been in Space Vampirates, who were my brother and his friends. And then, uh, my brother's girlfriend asked to join in and then, uh, was part of the Dungeons and Dragons group. So, uh, for as I mentioned, I only had two players at the start of this campaign. Uh, my friend Mike, my girlfriend Caitlin, and their characters. Uh, Mike was playing a smart hero, Dr. Dietrich Abendroth, uh, who was like a, a scientist, an inventor. He had a lot of clockwork devices, and he also had uh, one of those like old English explorer-style elephant rifles. And then uh, Caitlin was playing uh, a Russian princess named Lady Anna Varkalak, who was a fast hero, sharpshooter. And as the campaign progressed, she wound up being one of those crazy fast heroes who got like eight attacks in a round. Um, and she, you know, her character was designed so she was sort of like this, this burly but beautiful lady. And she had just, you know, a million holsters all over her. And she traveled with Gregor, who was her bodyguard slash basically a gun caddy. <laughs> you know, uh, he just carried her entire arsenal and like all, her steamer trunks and everything. Um, so they they were the the starting crew. And uh, as I said, you know, people were still <clears throat> settling into their actual interpersonal relationships as players. And so the way I played uh, played on that was. Uh, both of them were summoned under mysterious circumstances to a private meeting with a friend of theirs, a professor, Paul T. Sutter, because he had uh, a, a world-changing scientific discovery to unveil to them. It's nice. I like the vibe of it. Um, I gotta ask, those characters, did they have outrageous character voices? Uh, so Dietrich Abendroth did not, but Caitlin finds that the best way to get into character is to do a funny accent. And so uh, she was sinking her teeth into a, a thick Russian accent for the whole campaign. I definitely find like doing a voice is great for getting into character, though I know uh, not everybody's as down with it. Um, I mean, I, I love it. I don't frequently do it because I find that when I'm DMing, it's... It's like one too many things for me to keep track of if I start doing voices as well. I try to give a bit of physicality and some real personality to like the dialogue that my NPCs say, but I can't always act as them. I'll act I'll act in character for like the party NPC, like the NPC who sort of tags along for the whole game, but uh not as much for like the bartender or anything like that. Yeah, it gets it gets to be really hard when like, I recently did an arc where I was toying with this idea of, like, oh, this arc, it's going to be, like, uh, it's going to be, like, gangster London. And so I wanted to have, like, lots of Cockney accents and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, you start to realize that you've got maybe two or three in you. 
and you've got like eight NPCs by the end of the arc at least uh, that all need to sound, you know, suitably different. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, an unne- it's, it's at times an unnecessary challenge for oneself. I think um, on the note of like playing these games online is like uh, there are times, you know. I like to do the voice, but a lot of times I'll just want to do it as text, almost like uh, these sort of CRPGs that we've mentioned, like Baldur's Gate, Numenera, Disco Elysium. It's like you've got some lines by these characters that are voiced out, but then some of them you can just write out. um, Or if the game is specifically like no text, all voice, uh, sometimes I would just say, like, instead of just keeping the voice up for everybody, I would be like, oh, he tells you this because like can't be bothered to do the voice every time yep i feel that (laughs) i did uh want to say so my group started with these four players um so my brother uh was playing valfar eindraglin guy uh valfar eindraglin guy was a black dragonborn uh, bard. His name was Draglin Guy? Valfar Ein Draglin Guy. Okay, so just pause for a second. Um, do you find that, uh, like, your campaigns often stray into sort of that Harmon Quest, like, like fantasy, but like sort of tongue in cheek, winky kind of a thing? I think of like Dan Harmon's, you know, if you listen to uh, Dan Harmon's podcast, Harmon Town. His D&D sessions, oftentimes his characters will, ha- will have ridiculous names, and uh, but it'll still be part of the fun. I don't know. Von Draglin guy sounds to me like exactly that kind of thing. I'm okay, so I'm not hugely into that kind of like wacky Colonel Butthole uh, like <laughs> style of campaign, but. You know, I think it's important to note that this was my brother, and I have, like, a fair bit of trust for him when he's designing a character. And with Valfarine Draglin guy, part of the reason he had this wacky name was he had the Outlander background, and he had chosen the, like, the background uh, suggestion, the the offer of, like, I was, in fact raised by go- uh, by by wolves but he changed it to i was in fact raised by goblins so he's a dragonborn that was raised by goblins and so the name ein draglin guy is just like a dumb placeholder the name that the, that the goblin tribe gave him born of a dragon <laughs> It's just like he he like fell in with a tribe like uh, Jungle Book Mowgli style. It's just it was a bunch of dumb goblins instead of wolves. <laughs> so uh, yeah, they uh, dubbed him Ein Dragling guy, and he had his backstory was like also weirdly tragic. Uh, all of the goblins of that tribe had died, and he was the final survivor. Um, but they had died in like kind of a natural disaster which was um, a very specific setting element I have in my setting. So just to summarize, like the sort of basic fantasy setting that I was using for this game is called Drail. 
and it's I try to make it I tried to make it like you know you have uh Dungeons and Dragons settings which are massive and have tons of ancient history and stuff Drail is like as manageable as I could possibly make it so it has a very short history and it's just one continent and it's basically the size of Iceland and but one of the tricks about that is like it's one continent but I also have a place called slash thing called the Arctopus which is a uh, continent sized cephalopod which kind of like drifts around the main continent in an orbit and at random intervals like latches onto the main continent and effectively extends it and so there's all these elves that live specifically on the back of the arctopus and it's a big setting element is like no one knows when the arctopus is next going to break off or join on to the main continent, but it's going to bring like a whole new nation adjacent to wherever it, uh, uh, you know, grabs on. That sounds and, pretty goddamn metal. Well, and the thing I mentioned earlier, I was seeing the band Behold the Arctopus, and I got to tell the mm-hmm. head of Behold the Arctopus, hey, I have a continent in my D&D game called the Arctopus. Here's how it works. Anyways, um, so the thing is, Valfarine Dragling Guy's whole uh, adopted goblin family had died in a terrible landslide when the Arctopus had, like, broken off from the mountain range where they were, like, living. Um, so anyways, that was his tragic story. And his name also, not... Uh, Valfar is the name of uh, it was a metal musician guitarist there was this band called Windier and uh, one of the guys in it was this guy called Valfar who notoriously like died of hypothermia trying to travel by foot to a cabin in Norway like one, like trying to travel to his family's cabin it's like one of those like metal folklore stories um, and so Windir has this great album called Arntor Ein Windir, which means Arntor, a warrior. And then when the guy died, they did a tribute album called Valfar Ein Windir, which means Valfar, a warrior, which they were saying about their beloved bandmate. And then my brother made Valfar Ein Draglin guy, uh, who was a black dragonborn bard. So he was a black metal black dragon uh who like went around playing a demonic electric guitar uh that was like not electric powered by magic or whatever but you know this was part of his grim frostbitten background uh much like the metal tales that uh my brother and i grew up with um valfar had his own uh tragic and grim uh backstory (laughs) The other, uh, so then my brother's girlfriend was playing a relatively simple character. Um, again, we were sort of using the backgrounds just out of the player's handbook, which are like a great jumping off point for like creating a character with like cool offers and stuff. Um, so my brother's girlfriend played Mephily, which, or no, not Mephily, sorry, Mealy. She played Mealy, and it's funny because. I meet people who have played 
So Melee was uh was an elven thief rogue that my brother's girlfriend was playing. And I have met multiple other people who have played thief rogue elves named Melee because it's one of the like suggested elven names in the handbook. And and like I think it's it's a perfect like starting class build is like you know thief rogue is very 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 manageable and yet like very very competent and very easy to make a good character out of and uh you know so it's it's funny how mealy is sort of composed of uh classic D elements or something or like almost core elements of fifth edition it's like the name was there you know the classic elf rogue i think is a is definitely a good go-to build and uh you know she did a great job with it um she played it with a sort of almost kleptomaniac definitely like a greedy like if she found gold she wouldn't necessarily tell the party and split it up with them you know like that sort of thing um thief so so i have to ask you know that this sort of prompts the question but uh were your party a bunch of murder hobos? No, I wouldn't say so. Well, <laughs> actually, uh, a friend maybe this will be something to discuss over yeah. the course of the campaign. A friend of mine, uh, Phelan, who I've known, God, he's one of my oldest friends I've known since like grade three. He also loves to DM. And uh, at one point he said to me, he was like, you know, when you first start playing RPGs, all your character it doesn't matter what your alignment is, all your characters are kind of evil. <laughs> because when you first start playing, people are always like, can I kill that guy? Can I steal from him? I want to I pick his pocket. And it's like, alignment doesn't matter in those early, those early years of playing D&D because all your characters are inevitably evil. I think that, like, I had an advantage in that, you know, I had built in this sort of, like, structure of they're employed by a spy agency and the spy agency, you know, as I keep making this CIA metaphor, I wanted them to be kind of morally gray in certain areas. Like I wanted there to be this idea of like sometimes to stop the spread of this necromantic plague, they would maybe, you know, be arms dealers to like an orc warlord just to stop this necro empire from spreading and so uh, that was something that was in the initial design and gave some freedom in that element of like, okay, well, the players might do like surprisingly awful things, but they're probably only going to do it to somebody who they can rationally say like, oh, this is a member of the Nightside Eclipse or something. And so I think that at least plays into like the few examples I can think of like murder hobo-y things that they did. Um, getting on the topic of Mia Lee, though, uh, her sort of, uh, unique thing in the setting, like the thing that made her stand out as a character was that she had this background of, um, the folk hero and she had the background that was like, I was, uh, I, I fought against a tyrant. I armed the local peasantry against, a a, a cruel master, in the lands uh and something like that and we worked on that a bit and 
what we decided on was basically, or maybe it was just my idea. Maybe we didn't even decide on it. I just sort of like pitched it. But the idea was basically that she had led this um, elven revolution against a uh, cruel um, human warlord. But she had done all that in a different world than Drail. And what had happened was in retribution for that act of rebellion, the tyrant had then had her imprisoned and then basically sold her off on like an interdimensional market. But then she was uh, bought effectively by the Empok to be like retrained as this secret, as this super secret agent. And uh, that was something that I got to play on later where like she continuously like sort of goes back to her own world to use the gains that she has as a spy to uh, benefit her own people. And like there was ongoing stuff with her backstory of like what her home world was like and how she's technically an interdimensional alien in the like main fantasy setting that the game was taking place in. Um, then... The two friends of my brother that were playing, we had one that was playing a human uh, infernal warlock named Alistair, uh, who was basically your typical uh, like pyromaniac, devil-worshipping warlock. <laughs> uh, Worship the devils for powers of fire. <laughs> And uh, so, again, starting to sound like a bit of a murder hobo crew. Uh-huh. Um, All too familiar. And, and then there was uh, Magnus, who was a, uh, you know, mountain dwarf uh, paladin. And for him, uh, you know, he wanted to play basically like kind of a, a typical, like, um, ale guzzling like drunken uh dwarven knight paladin um but then we decided to make up a deity for him that was named garador and he was the blind god of destruction and he's basically like so the idea is like this paladin is like a paladin of justice whose patron is just like a rampaging juggernaut um the name actually came from uh, Garador is like a bad guy, one of the monsters in Resident Evil 4. I have an action figure of him. He's the one that's like got claws on his hands and like a mask, but he like can't see. And so he like finds you by sound. Anyways, that was all just kind of like, I don't know. I guess I had the action figure lying around. I'm not sure what inspired that exact thing, but I just kind of pitched it as like, okay, so what if, your deity is like the blind god of destruction and you're just like a vessel to aim this destruction because of course he was a vengeance paladin i think and uh so yeah he was like uh you know he had the typical strong dwarven accent and uh was always drunk or drinking and uh yeah real uh he he was the obvious tank for the group, absolutely. So yeah, and it's funny because in that first game, uh, you know, I didn't enforce anything to make people play relatively down the earth characters. But I think 
what we ended up with was pretty classic character builds for the first campaign. Yeah, it sounds like a fairly well-rounded uh, party. So, um, did you have anything else you wanted to say about introducing your party or setting? No, I don't want to spoil too much of how it all unfolds. But I will say that, uh, you know, as I noted, I started with these two players, and by the end, I had four players. So, as it went on, I think within the first four adventures, the party size had doubled by that point. So, there are a couple of other players who who come in as the game went on, and it wound up actually meshing nicely with how I'd outlined how I'd outlined it. Part of the the early part of this campaign is like putting together a crew, and so I, as like an opportunity in that, I got to introduce a couple of other players into the party. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing about the players as they come in. Hopefully, uh, we'll do that kind of episodically on the pod. Yeah, um, I'm excited to hear more about your campaign, man, and. I gotta tell you, like it's really fun just talking shop with another DM. It's a it's a really rare occurrence for me because the party that I play with, like my my play group, they all just like my DMing so much that I end up DMing for them. Like I can't, yeah, I couldn't. Act, the forever I think the last DM. time I actually played in a game was 2012. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, well, I mean, this is uh, this is what the pod's all about, um, you know. And uh, going back to that thing about like the vocation to be the DM, I've had friends who talk about the fe- the forever DM condition, where it's like they're the only DM in their friend group, and they're just always the DM. Uh, and similarly, I know people who like, you know, they're drummers, and so in every band they're in, they're the drummer. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's an apt comparison, I think, is like, sometimes you just, you get put in that role. I, I mean, players do it too, you know, there's always going to be the player who wants to play the halfling rogue. It's always, there's always someone who, who plays that style. It can get really annoying, actually. Thankfully, I don't run into these people anymore, but certainly in like high school, if I'd be playing D&D uh, and, you know, trying out different, different groups of, of players you'd run into those people who would like every time they played, they played, you know, a hider and his name was Sir, uh, a fighter and his name was Sir Derek. And this Sir Derek is like the ancestor. It's in a modern setting, but he's the ancestor. It is, it's like the descendant of Sir Derek from the fantasy setting. Like, I so, mean, sometimes it, people just get stuck like that, I guess. In fairness, uh, I only recently out of like maybe four games of five E I only recently rolled my first character that was not a goblin warlock. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, I'm kind of hey, guilty of this. But, nothing uh, wrong with those preferences, man. I mean, it, it's the character that I am. What can I say? Um, <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to sort of close this episode out on basically at this point, how far ahead had we planned for our campaign? And did like how much did we know where we were going? So um, I'll talk about this more uh, as I, as we get into this campaign. Um, at this point, I had set up like uh, a decent outline. It's great because uh, I would say that this campaign, Minds of Bendel and Wheels, uh, is the campaign that I have prepared the most for out of any campaign I've ever done. 
uh, I was in university at the time. I had enough spare time to like really dedicate to it. And so I had prepared a lot. I had made a bunch of like mood boards of images I'd found. Uh, I had done an overarching outline, including some footnotes for a sequel campaign, if it got that far, which I wound up running years later, which was really cool. Um, cause I could then go back and make sure everything connected. Uh, and in fact, the first few adventures, I took the time to write them out like full on D and D modules, like with flavor text, with branching story arcs. You could run them sort of like a flow chart, uh, with all sorts of like search tables and stuff. I really committed to this one. And in the end, it, I, I think that's because for for this campaign, I was working with a, a significantly homebrewed setting. So I really wanted to get early on all the flavor right. I wanted the, the world to feel very immersive and fully fleshed out. So I really took the time early on. And I started, I wound up using a lot more shorthand as the campaign went on as, and people really got to know the setting. But like... I'm looking over my camp my adventure notes for that first one and like I've got a search table here where people can search through, you know, uh, a warehouse and if they roll DC8 they see a clipboard hanging on the wall of the inventory but if you know less than that and they miss it and things like that. So uh I went way in depth for this one and it paid off great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about these uh as we uh as we get into them. Um, for me at this point, basically, I think what I had planned was basically what I've described so far, you know, I've got the MPOC and an idea of who they are as sort of a clandestine agency and then who the villains are, who their enemy is basically. Um, and then we had these players and I was sort of presenting myself with, okay, these four like heroes are going to be brought together to be like a team for the empoc and uh we'll see where that takes us and uh yeah i think that was about it um well and then the world of drail that i mentioned like i already mentioned i had the whole arctopus thing going on um but there's more about drail that of course we'll zoom in on as i talk about different sessions and like things that were relevant that's exciting I am very excited, and I'm uh, looking forward to the pod. I hope uh, everybody listening has enjoyed it, and uh, look forward to talking D&D next time. Session one, the adventure begins. Session one.